How are you all doing today? How are you all doing this afternoon? I don't know about you, but I wanted to stay in bed this morning. Today's one of those days where, you know, you just stay in bed, have some breakfast, have a cup of coffee, and just wait for the football game. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I just want you to know that that's how I felt. But I didn't give in to my feelings. You know what I'm saying? I said I want to come and encourage my brothers and sisters in Lower Westchester. I want to come and see my peeps, my friends, my buddies, my partners from back in the day and from the present day. Uh, so we are honored to be here. I'm here with my beautiful wife, Robin, of 21 years. And my beautiful daughter, Gabrielle, who just turned 16 in August. Amen. And I definitely want to appreciate uh, Kevin uh, for inviting me uh, to come and speak here. This is definitely totally spirit-led. I want to encourage you to pray for Kevin. Kevin is in the Bahamas helping his son-in-law and daughter with their, with their home. But pray for him to come back. Because knowing Kevin... They're going to appoint him to be the minister of uh, the minister of hurricane reconstruction in the Bahamas, and you're going to find out on TV that 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 they 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 they, they found him and appointed him. So pray for him to come back, right, Andy? You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> He's a great brother, uh, and uh, I was, you know, I know Harry Mullen is a man of many talents, but I did not know. I did not know that Harry could lead songs. I did not know that. I mean, I knew, I knew the brother could do many things, but I did not know that. Um, man, and the singing has been really great. Singing has been really great. I like, I like the place. It's nice and cozy. Um, so today we're going to... Um, my message today is about Jesus' vision for his church. Jesus' vision for his church. And, um, you know, there's so many conflicting ideas about what church is, right? Or what church is supposed to be. So, so what I want to do is I want to kind of go over what some of you may consider basic elementary teachings about the church. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just cover some basic elementary teachings about the church. And, and for some of them, they may be, for some of us, it may be elementary, but some people may be hearing this stuff for the first time. So we're going to go over some of these things before we um, uh, dive into what Jesus' vision for the church is. Amen? Um, so why don't we bow our heads and say a prayer. Father, it's so good to be together. It's so good to be able to worship you. You are awesome. Father, you are the, the creator of heaven and earth. You are the giver of life. Father, if it weren't for you, none of us would have gotten out of our bed this morning. And Father, you are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be revered. You are enthroned above all the heavens and the earth. And even now, the angels bow down before you and acknowledge you as being holy. And Father, we want to take some time to expose our minds and our hearts to your word. And Father, I pray that uh, as we study your word today, that your spirit will minister to every single person here. 
that each heart, each soul, each mind will be exposed to a greater degree to your truth. Father, we know that the scriptures say that we are sanctified by your truth. And Father, I pray that as we as we study your word, that you would be miraculously sanctifying us, transforming us into the kind of men and women that you desire for us to be. Father, be with me. Help me to teach your word boldly and help me to teach your word accurately. But most important, may I exalt your son and our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. The first question I'm going to tackle is, what is the church? What is the church? When I was a teenager, I used to think that the church was a building. Okay? I used to think that the church was a building. So anytime someone would ask me, where's the church? I would instinctively point to the building. There it is. And even when I was following the directions to come to the lower Westchester region, I said, look, there's a church there. And I instinctively, while we were driving by I, and we instinctively identified the church with the building. So even though I've been in the faith over 20 years, it's still in me. You with me here? And the word, we got to understand that the word church was a brand new concept in the New Testament. Brand new concept. How many times do you think the word church was used in the Gospels? How many times? Take a guess. Three, once. Actually, the word church was used only twice. And both of them in the, in the book of Matthew. Okay, you get, you get more discussion about church outside of the Gospels in the letters to the, to the different congregations, but we're going to take a look at that. But if you look at, um, if you look at Matthew 16, uh, it says when Jesus, in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So here's the first time Jesus actually mentions the word church. And he says, on this rock. I will build my church. And Jesus is referring to himself as the rock. You with me here? Like I said, we're going to cover some elementary teachings. So if this is familiar, you just got to say amen. All right, amen. 
So he is going to build the church on himself. Right? And he says, I will build my church. Jesus claims ownership of the church. The church belongs to Jesus. And can I get an amen from the lower Westchester church? The church belongs to Jesus. Okay? And so it's important that we understand that the church is going to be built on Him, meaning His words, His teachings, and that the church belongs to Him. Alright? And then he goes on to say, I will give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so there is a connection between the church and the kingdom of heaven. Now, based only on this text, it's not very clear what that connection is, but in later texts, especially in the book of Acts and in other teachings in the, in the New Testament, we find out that the only way someone can get to heaven is through the church. It's the only way. And how do people get to heaven? What, what are the things that someone has to do to get to heaven? Anyone can answer. What do you got to do? Repent and be baptized. And where do we find that scripture, church? In Acts 2, verse 38. The only way someone can get into the church and, and into heaven is by repenting and baptism. You with me here? No matter how good you feel about yourself, you can't get into heaven just by feeling good about yourself. No matter how many good deeds you do, no matter how much money you give to philanthropy or foundations, that does not guarantee that you get to heaven. The only vehicle that mankind has to get to heaven is through the church. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, so, you know, as I said, there's only a couple of uh, instances where the, the word church is mentioned in the Gospels. That was one of them. But there's a lot more discussion about this, this concept, this idea of church. Remember, in the New Testament, it was a new idea. It was, it was a new thing. Church. What is that? And in the New Testament, you find out that there's, there, especially the Apostle Paul, he, he, he articulated this concept and taught about the concept of church at length. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says in the opening of his letter to the church in Corinth, he says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right there, you could, you could have a quiet time for about a week just on that. Just on, just on those opening remarks. And I want to I want to try to, to, to talk about some of these concepts that Paul is bringing up here. Okay? So, so he's introducing his letter to the church in Corinth. And his words 
if you look carefully, his words bring to light what he thought the church was. Okay, so first of all, he says to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So as he's writing this letter to the church, he sees them. Now remember, the church in Corinth was pretty jacked up, right? If you're familiar with what was going on. But when he's writing this letter, he sees them as a group of people who have been sanctified in Christ, right? What does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to be sanctified? When someone is sanctified, they are set apart for the use intended by its designer. Right? Now that's, that's a mouthful, right? It's, I'll, I'll repeat that. When someone is sanctified, they are set apart for the use intended by its designer. Alright? Let me give you an example. An F-15 jet. Anybody know what I'm talking about? F-15 jet? Anybody? Okay, good. An F-15 jet is set apart for a specific purpose. It's an aircraft designed for combat missions. Right? An F-15 is not a passenger airline. If you were trying to transport 50 people to Jamaica, you will not use an F-15. You with me here? The F-15 is sanctified by its designer for a specific purpose, which is combat. You with me here? The church is sanctified by its designer for a specific purpose. Right? Then you can write down John 17, 17. Well, how is the church sanctified? It says in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The church is sanctified by the word of God, by the truth. You with me here? Okay. The other characteristic that Paul mentions is that the church is, and I quote, called to be holy. Called to be holy. It's important to know that the church does not will itself to be holy. This, this is a calling. Right? We, 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 in the, people in the church don't, don't automatically want to be holy. Right? It's not part of who we are. It's not part of our design. We are, we are called to be holy. And who is it that calls us to be holy? Jesus. So we are sanctified. Members of the church are sanctified for a specific purpose and called to be holy. But what does it mean? To be holy. Holy is the opposite of common or profane. God is holy in that he is utterly different and distinct from this creation. You know, God, God you know, we, we fuss about the rain. 
You think God is upset that it's raining? You know, we, we worry about getting old. You know what I'm saying? God, God is ageless. You know, we're, we're thinking about, we, we, we live in this concept of time. God doesn't live in a concept of time. God doesn't go, hey, I'm running late. You know, God, God's like, uh, I'm in charge here. You know? And, and so we, we, we live in a, in, a, in a world that's so different from God. God is, is in a completely different place. He's holy. He's utterly different and distinct from his creation. But the people of God must be distinct and separate from the heathen in their attitudes and actions, which are common to unbelievers. So, so we are called to be different. Now, some people look at holiness as being weird. It's not. Some people look at holiness as being uncool. It's not. No, we are called to be holy. We can't be involved in the things that the world is involved in. We can't be fired up about the things that the world is fired up about. Because we are called, we are, the actual Greek word, ecclesia, the Greek word of church is ecclesia, which means a calling out of. We have been called, the church is a group of believers who have been called out of this world. And we ought to be fired up that we are not a part of this world. You with me here? There is no other institution on earth called to be holy. The Department of Education has not been called to be holy. The armed forces of the United States have not been called to be holy. The Department of Justice has not been called to be holy. And believe it or not, the whole United States government is not an institution that God has called to be holy. we got to understand this. All these institutions are just institutions of man. And they have their place. They have their place on this, on this earth, but they are not called to be holy. So we can't expect holiness from these institutions. Can I get an amen, church? But what's also cool is that he's not only writing to the church in Corinth, but he's saying, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus. So in a sense, there is a sense that the disciples in the Corinth church, they're not, they're not just an isolated group, but they're a part of something bigger. Isn't that cool? It's not just... Their little group in Corinth and what's going on in Corinth. He says that together we are everywhere. The church is, 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 is anyone who, who believes these things. Anyone who has accepted this calling. Wherever they may be. Wherever they may be. And I appreciate what Brother uh, Merwin shared. Man, there's, there's, there's parts of our church that they're everywhere. We don't even know who they are. They're doing stuff everywhere. You know, we just had a sister from, um, from, from China visit um, the church in Queens. And she was just, she was so amazed at just how we get to express our worship. 
Tashila, she is a part of the of an underground church in China, and they can't just come and worship like how we worship. She was just like, "Wow, this is so cool." With things we take for granted, we got nice screen and singing and everything. They gotta do what they they have to practice their faith in secret. I'm glad that she met. She came and we got to meet her. So we started by asking the question, what is the church? And I think we can arrive at an answer. The church is a community of people who believe in Jesus Christ and submit themselves to his authority. Moreover, these people have committed to live holy lives and they want to be used by God as his instrument. That is what the church is. I know there was a lot in there, but... It's a community of people who believe in Jesus and submit to themselves to his authority. And they are committed to live a holy life and they want to be used by God as his instruments. That, from what I read in the scriptures, is what is the biblical definition of church. Now, this definition of the church helps us to distinguish between what is who is following the biblical definition and who's just out there doing their own thing? Right? This definition also, I think, helps us to evaluate ourselves with greater objectivity. Because every now and then we need a we need a checkup. You know what I'm saying? We need we need an evaluation. For me, me personally, I grew up in, in the Catholic Church. My dad is Catholic, and I affiliated myself for many years with the Catholic teachings. But now as I look at the biblical definition of the church, I see that even though the Catholics have the word church next to their name, their definition of church is way different from what's in the Bible. Now, it took me a while, trust me, it took me a while to realize that. But I came to the realization that even though I grew up Catholic and and I was affiliated very deeply emotionally with the Catholic church, their concept of church is very different from the biblical concept. And you may ask, well, how is that? Where do you see that, Sean? And I will just say, based on the scripture that we just read, Matthew 16, he says, on this rock I will build my church. Right? But the, in the Catholic tradition, the Pope is seen as the preeminent authority. So whatever the Pope says trumps, pardon the expression, <laughs> Whatever the church, whatever the Pope says, trumps what Jesus says. And, and, and for many of us that grew up in the Catholic Church, we think that that's normal. That's okay. But when I, when I come back to Scripture, I realize that's not what Jesus intended. You with me here? Now, we don't have time this morning to analyze every single group calls themselves church. But the key argument I'm making is that there is a biblical definition of the church. And based on that definition, the church has Jesus as the final authority and members of the church are sanctified and called to live holy lives. That definition is important to help us evaluate ourselves. Because think about it, if we are not clear on what the church is, if we are ambiguous in any way, then we can make the church whatever we want it to be. 
we, we can just make the church wherever we feel like it should be. The church can become a social club. A place to find a good wife or a good husband. It can become a place to get free counseling on how to have a great marriage or how to raise our kids right. The church can become a place where we just do a lot of good things, just lots and lots and lots of good things to feel good about ourselves. If we're not careful, we can make the church anything we feel like it should be. But if the church is only a social organization, then sometimes you get into a conflict, right? With a brother or sister who disappoints you or hurts you. Then what? Then you go, I'm out. I'm out. I'm leaving this group. Because in your, and it's so easy. Why? Because in your mind, that's social fabric, which is, which is so important. Has, you've been, you know, disappointed. So your solution is, I'm out. People, now I'm not talking about you, but there's certain people that can think like that. You know what I'm saying? But if I really believe these scriptures, then if I decide to leave this church, the question I got to ask is, how do I remain sanctified outside of this body of believers? How do I remain holy? Outside of this body of believers. Because if we really believe the biblical definition of what the church is, then only in this context can I be sanctified and can I be holy. So if I choose to leave this body of believers, how then can I be holy? What avenues do I have? But if that doesn't matter to me, then I'll just go wherever I feel like going. Are you feeling me here? Wow, how are we doing with time? All right, so we talked about this a little bit. What is the church? Now I want to talk about who's in charge. Who is really in charge of the church, all right? When you go on the streets, you see churches everywhere, right? And on the billboard, you'll see the name of the pastor or the reverend, right? Pastor so-and-so. Reverend so-and-so. And typically, these guys are really smart people. They, they, they're PhD, they have names, you know, letters behind their names. And, 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 and so most people think that that church, who Reverend Jim is the pastor, somehow we start using the language that Reverend Jim owns that church. The church over there on the corner, that's Reverend Jim's church. Right? Or some of us may be familiar with Joel Osteen. Very popular guy. I mean, amazing motivational speaker. And you see, you know, shots of his congregation. And we typically go, well, that's Joel Osteen's church. Right? That's how we think. We were in an appointment. My wife and I were in an appointment the, the, the other day. And a sister in, in the appointment tells us about something going on in the church. And she says, I just want you to know what's going on in your church. I looked at us like, we looked at each other like, our, oh, wait a second, our church? No, no. And her husband was right there in there saying, no, no, it's not Sean and Robin's church. This is, this is God's church. And then she was like, yeah, 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 but you know what I mean. But you know, sometimes I'm not really sure. 
sometimes, sometimes it can become ambiguous, in, even in our own minds. You know, you may see Kevin and Andy up, up on the website and go, well, that's Kevin and Andy's church. Right? That's how we think. That's part of our national culture. We refer to, to churches being, the, being under the authority of men. And, and Jesus says, again, Matthew 16, I'm going to build my church. This is my church. He is the final authority. The church doesn't belong to Sean Barnes or Sam Powell or Kevin Finnerty. And I, I shouldn't be walking around the places if I own the church. Now, I have a role to play, but I don't own the church. Okay? Ephesians 1. Check this out. Ephesians 1. Look at what, look at what Paul says here. He says, um, I pray also in verse 18 that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power to us, for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. All right, so here we go. Um, he's talking about Christ. He's explaining Christ to the, to the uh, uh, Ephesian believers. And, and, and right there in verse 22, he says something that's very relevant to our discussion this morning. He says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him head over everything for the church, which is his body. First of all, God appointed Jesus head of the church. That was not a role or position that Jesus appointed himself to. It was appointed to him by God. And then the text goes on to express that the church is the body of Jesus. And this is the classic head-body analogy that's also found in other passages in the New Testament. Jesus being the head and the church being the body, okay? Now, you've all seen the stick diagram, right? The, 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 Jesus, you know, you've done the church study. Jesus the head and the church is the body. Now, my head tells my body what to do. My body was telling me this morning, sleep in. This is the perfect day. <laughs> that was what my body was saying to me today. But my head told my body, you got to get up, buddy. We got to go do the Lord's work. My body reluctantly submitted to my head. But we're here together. All right? Praise God. <laughs> Amen. If my head ceased to control my body, I would have a serious medical problem, wouldn't I? One example of that is Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease is a neurological disorder that affects the motor system. The body starts shaking, sometimes there's slowness of movement or difficulty with walking. That's because the head is losing control over the body. If the church is the body of Christ, 
The church must be responsive to the commands and instructions of the head. This is important. Church must be responsive to the commands and instructions of the head. Because each person who is a part of the church must see themselves individually as needing to respond to the commands and instructions of Jesus. We got to do this individually, but we also got to do this collectively. Now imagine if, uh, if 10 people in the church of 100 became unresponsive to the commands of Jesus. Some of us will say, well, man, that's only 10 people. That's 10%. But if you frame it another way, right, if you, if you think about it in a different context, if 10% of your body did not respond to your command, would you go, hey, no big deal, that's just 10%. I got the other 90%. Would you be like that? You know? Or would you be like, I get me to a doctor? You have ten fingers. Can you imagine if one of your fingers, the little pinky one, did not respond? You'd be like, oh, what's happening? Why? Because don't you expect your whole body to respond? That's how Christ thinks. This is my body. You can't have, you can't have only certain people coming to midweek. You're getting real quiet here, brother and sister. I mean, I'm talking about the body of Christ here. We can't have certain people involved in seeking and saving the lost. Oh, this is the committed few. What? It's got to be everybody. We can't only have certain people being hospitable. It's got to be everybody. This is the body of Christ. You with me here? So these two truths are central to understanding what I really came here to talk about. I really came here to talk about Jesus' vision for the church, right? But if we don't understand these important concepts, these elementary truths, then no matter what I preach about Jesus' vision, if we're not responding, it don't matter. We could just come here and hear a good sermon and go home and watch the Steeler game. Ain't no big deal. Because if we're not submitting to the authority of Jesus, if we don't feel like we are sanctified for an intended purpose, that we're called to be holy, if we don't feel like that matters to me personally, then it doesn't matter what the vision of Jesus is. So that's why I'm saying, these two truths are central to understanding Jesus' vision for the church. The church is a community of believers, sanctified and called to live holy lives, and that the final authority of the church is Jesus. Now let's look at his vision. What is the vision? John 17. What's his vision? John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. If you have an NIV, it says, Jesus prays for all the believers. That happens to be us. Right? So when you, when you, when you, when you read this passage, this is a direct prayer for the men and women in this room. For the men and women in the New York City Church of Christ. For the men and women 
in what we call the international the fellowship of the international churches of Christ. This is this is Jesus' prayer for us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself will be in them. <clears throat> what is Jesus' vision for the church? He says it right here. I pray that they will be one. That's his vision. That's his prayer. And I don't think Jesus would pray for something that's impossible to happen, to, to accomplish. And then, well, well, how one should we be? <laughs> how one should we be? We should be as one as the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus are. Because he says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That's how united we should be. And then he goes on to say, um, may they be brought, brought to complete unity. Jesus wants this church. His vision is complete unity. Now, how complete should the unity be? As unified as Jesus was with, the, it was with God and with the Holy Spirit. And how unified were they? They were pretty unified. Now, they had their problems every now and then, but they all worked it out. Garden of Gethsemane stuff, you know what I'm saying? They worked it out, and they came out of that unified, right? Unified is huge. Unif- unity is the conviction of the head. Is the body committed to unify, to being unified in this way? That's the question that only you can answer. That's the question only you can answer. Are you as committed to unity as Jesus wants you to be? Are we committed to it as Jesus wants us to be? How important is complete unity to you personally? Unity with your Bible talk leader. Unity with your brothers and sisters in your Bible talk. Unity with the New York City Church of Christ. How important is that to you personally? Remember I talked about head body? If the head is saying be unified and the body is going, "Uh uh-uh, that's just not my game. We got problems. Because then we have a group of people in the body unresponsive to the demands and the direction of the head. You with me here? If this is what the head wants, I don't think any of us should tolerate an ounce of disunity. 
And I think we got to be firm on this. How, whatever shape or form that disunity may look like, whether it be racial, whatever, whether it be economical, whether it be just me versus them, however it may look, we cannot tolerate an ounce of disunity in the Lord's church. Why? Because it is His expressed will that we be unified. And I love what he says, we have to be brought to complete unity. It's not something that comes naturally. In Ephesians 4, it says, make every effort to keep the unity. It takes work. You can't unify, you can't be unified via email. You, you can't be unified over text message or Facebook. You forge unity face to face. You, 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 you make the time to meet with that brother or sister that you're not really feeling. And you say, let's work this out. You make the time. It's important. Why? Because the head says it's important. And if we're going to be the body of believers sanctified and called to be holy, we must respond to the head. No excuses. We got to do it collectively, but most importantly, we got to have an individual conviction. I got to be unified in my heart. We can't have brothers and sisters who had some issue five, six years ago and they're sitting on opposite ends of the pew. That is ridiculous. Wow, how you feel about that, brother? Well, you know, five years ago, he didn't invite me to the barbecue. and That was five years ago. That was five years ago. Or whatever the situation is. What happens when the church is unified? Now, this is the, this is the key. What does he say happens? He says, the world will believe. And it say, he says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe. Now you start to see what's hanging in the balance. Now you get to see how important unity really is. Because Jesus' ultimate concern is for the lost world. For men and women who don't know him. He said the only way the world will truly believe is when they see a unified body of believers. I don't know how it happens. But if I understand it correctly, as the church interacts with the world, people will see the kind of relationships we have for one another. And somewhere in there, Jesus will pop into their mind. They will start believing in Jesus based on how they see us interact with one another. The world will not necessarily see Jesus in us individually, but they'll see Jesus in us when they see how we relate to one another, church. When the world sees black and white and, and, and Latino disciples fighting to be unified, the world sees us working through our clear differences. Showing grace and mercy to one another. Then they'll believe in Jesus. 
When the world sees us submitting to one another in love and not looking at who's a citizen and who's an immigrant, then they'll believe in Jesus. When the world sees men treating women with respect and holding them in the highest regard and, and treating them with purity, then they'll go, my gosh, this got to be Jesus. When the world sees that a Christian can be a Democrat and a Christian can be Republican or Independent, but it's not going to mar or destroy our relationship with one another, or are we not going to be hurling insults with one another on Facebook? Then they'll go, but this is Jesus. When the world sees that we welcome the drug addict, the alcoholic, the homosexual, and we love each one unconditionally and expect each one to be holy by the Scriptures, then they'll say, there's got to be a Jesus. The more unified we are, church, the greater the impact, the more the world will believe in the resurrected Christ. That's his vision. And I hope that our study of God's word has deepened your conviction in the hope that God has for his church. God did not leave a new technology he did not leave a new medicine. He did not leave a new form of government. When Jesus left this world, he left his church. It is the pillar and foundation of truth. It is the city on the hill. It is his bride. Let us, brothers and sisters, remain true to our calling to be sanctified and holy as we hold out the word of life to the fallen generation. Amen.